Bert Cohen here, keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very hideous system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're really seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of men. Uh, The dignity of humanity. Well, if it is a strategy, it's working. It seems Trump-initiated outrages come at least once a day lately. Who can keep up? Who even remembers the time he shared military secrets with the Russians in the Oval Office to show off? Who remembers that? Most recently, as we record this, uh, and he did real damage to American interests with his shocking and just blatantly racist comments about countries in Africa and Haiti. Of course, the beneficiary will be China, which is deeply invested in that resource-rich, quickly developing continent as those nations now have a reason to shun American businesses which might be trying to gain a foothold there. America is freezing itself out of many huge markets, and our current administration's choices, picking winners, if you will, present a clear message to the world, where once... In my lifetime, actually, America was seen as a moral beacon by developing nations. What the world sees is something most Americans do not, and that is American unfettered, full-tilt weapons supplier to the world. That is how we are known. That is what we are best at. And what does that get us? Why is this happening? And how different is Trump's approach to the weapons business if it is different at all? Our guest today, William Hartung, Director of Arms and Security Project at the Center for International Policy and is the author of Prophets of War, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, Prophets of War, Lockheed Martin and the Making of the Military-Industrial Complex. We're going to look at the conventional role the U.S. has played in proliferation of arms sales in recent decades and how it compares to now and going forward and what has changed since Trump entered the White House. Bill Harding, thanks so much for being with us again on Keeping Democracy Alive. Yes, thanks for having me. As he points in in his article titled, Another Good Year for Weapons Makers is Guaranteed, which was first appeared in Tom's Dispatch and now is in The Nation and a whole bunch of other places. I love how that works. Uh, much as the right wing criticized President Obama was picking winners and supporting prioritized solar power, As your article makes clear, Trump is picking winners in this economy. During his campaign, candidate Trump was quite open in his gratefulness to the weapons manufacturing business, whose lobbyists, of course, include, but are not limited to, the NRA. There are many different angles to this story. We've we've long earned the reputation as the arms dealer to the world, yet some in positions of power apparently think we need to open the spigot even more 
and make it still easier for American gun and ammunition manufacturers to sell to anyone interested abroad while making it far harder for law enforcement here to track whose hands those weapons end up in. Oversight has been the purview of the State Department, but Trump apparently plans to put the Commerce Department in charge of oversight. What what effect would that have, Bill? Well, uh, the State Department, at least on paper, is supposed to have scrutiny of human rights. Uh, will the arms fall into the hands of terrorists? Are they going to fuel an arms race in a given region? Um, are they going to be... Is there going to be corruption? Um, whereas the Commerce Department's job is to push weapons out the door, and so there'll be less human rights uh, considerations. Um, there'll be less reporting, which means if, if a country wants to, for example, set up business in an allied country, the United States, uh, and then use that false front to sell weapons to Iran or China or some other destination where, in theory, U.S. policy would not want them to go, it's easier for them to do that. Um, and uh, the contractors have been pushing for this reform for years, since the 90s. And it was only under President Obama that they began to make progress. Uh, but he held off on this last, most controversial piece, which was firearms. And, and this is the piece that Trump is trying to deliver on. And as you mentioned, he has had had uh, bedrock support from the NRA, who are very supportive of this policy. Oh, I'm sure. Well, the NRA... My understanding is they used to represent gun owners, actually, before there was kind of a coup. And now the NRA is the gun manufacturers, the ammunition manufacturers, really. And as every family understands, a budget is a statement of of values, you know, where we put our money. We know Trump is very keen on cutting taxes for the richest among us and that many Republicans and some Democrats are okay with cutting investment in social programs. I wonder if you could tell us about one year one of the Trump budget priorities. How do the blue-chip major weapons contractors make out? Well, they're still deciding how high to push the budget. Uh, Trump wanted to add $54 billion, which is a huge sum. It's larger than the entire military budgets of a lot of U.S. allies, like Germany, Japan, and others. Um, so the stock market, looking at that, pumped up their stock prices, uh, their profits have been, for some of them, at record levels. Um, And, of course, he's pushed overseas arms sales, which are a huge boon to these companies because they actually make more profits on those than they do selling to the Pentagon. They charge more. Mm. uh, They do all kinds of support work that they then charge for again, uh, sometimes, you know, over 10 or 20 years from the time the weapon is sold. Um, So the contractors are doing quite well and, and are likely to do better this year because the implications, impacts of Trump's first budget and the Congress, which actually wants to go higher than Trump did, all that money will start flowing this year. So uh, however well they did last year, uh, this year could be even better for them, worse for a lot of us because it's diverting money from things we need. You know, as you say, you know, Trump is, is not, he doesn't come out of nowhere. It's not just Trump with regard to the Pentagon and weapons systems. For many decades, it seemed like members of Congress from both parties are are just terrified of being perceived as soft on defense. I wonder if you could tell us about what you called a bipartisan stampede for boosting this Pentagon budget. 
Well, you know, Trump wanted $54 billion. By the time it worked its way through Congress, they wanted an $85 billion increase. Um, and a lot of that had to do with increasing spending on weapons in the states and districts of key members. More F-15s and F-15s for Missouri, uh, more tanks for Michigan and Ohio, uh, more ships for Virginia, Connecticut, Maine. Um, so part of it is pork barrel politics. Part of it is, I think, um, some members who otherwise might put some reins on the Pentagon are kind of believing the Pentagon and industry propaganda that we have a, quote, readiness crisis. Uh, you know, there's been uh, sailors who've crashed ships and lost their lives in the Pacific, Marines crashing planes and training. Um, and so their argument has been, well, it's because we don't have enough money. Uh, but in fact, they spend all kinds of money on nuclear weapons we don't need, F-35 aircraft that don't work. Right. Um, there was a Pentagon study that found uh, they waste about $25 billion a year just on excess bureaucracy. Wow. They hire all kinds of private contractors or overpaid and do work that could be done by government employees. So if they really need $10 million here, a few million there to increase training or make sure the equipment is well-maintained, they have more than enough money to do that. But they haven't done that because that's not where the profits are, ah. and that's not where the lobbyists are pushing for. So, uh, And as you're, you say, a lot of Democrats with the nation at war in multiple countries, with this whole argument that all of this goes for the troops, are reluctant to uh, push back when the Pentagon puts out this kind of propaganda. Yeah, and, you know, there's a lot more support for veterans and for the military personnel in general these days. I think kind of a, a strong reaction to the uh, memory, right or wrong, of how they were treated during the Vietnam War. But there is a lot of support for veterans these days. And everybody wants them to be respected and taken care of medically. Really, it doesn't matter, left, right, whatever. I remember soldiers in Iraq just a few years ago having to push hard to get better protection, heavier armoring for the personnel carriers, which were so vulnerable to IEDs, uh, uh, improvised explosive devices in the roads. I, and and uh, the uh, Secretary of Defense wasn't exactly helpful to that. So they had to fight hard for that. And this is, the guys were getting hurt. It, I often wonder about the percentage of military spending going to take care of the needs of service members, as you mentioned, compared to the percentages of cost that goes into increased profits for the weapons contractors. What do you know about this? You know, Because we want to support making it safe for the veterans and protecting their lives and limbs. Well, uh, I dug around a little bit, and it looks like well over $300 billion a year about 40 to 50 percent of the Pentagon budget ends up in the pockets of corporations, um, wow. building nuclear weapons, doing paperwork that could be done by government employees, uh, doing intelligence briefings for key members of the administration. Almost everything you can think of, there's, there's a private company involved in some fashion, um, guarding military bases. Uh, but what's missing is investments in things that are probably most important to returning vets, uh, things like, um, mm -hmm. you know, people who are trained in helping them deal with a post-traumatic stress sure. syndrome yeah. or with traumatic brain injuries, of, of whom there are hundreds of thousands of vets who are uh, suffering from these kinds of things. And there's not enough money going to that, either in the Veterans Administration or through the military 
healthcare system. Uh, and the bureaucracies are terrible. You know, the, making the transition from military benefits to veterans' benefits can be a bureaucratic nightmare. So part of it's money, part of it's making the bureaucracies serve the needs of the veterans as opposed to kind of sitting on their hands or, or just mm. wasting time and money of everybody. Um, but clearly, you know, not every dollar going into the Pentagon budget is helping the troops. You know, the troops aren't helped by uh, nuclear overkill or building weapons that are not necessarily better than the ones yeah. we already have at much higher prices, harder to maintain, uh, harder to actually use in combat, things like the F-35, which I mentioned. Yeah. So, um, yeah, sure, there's money, you know, there's military pay, uh, military health care is increasing in uh, costs. But there's also a lot of needs that aren't being met. And, you know, when it's presented in Washington, it's made to seem like, you know, every single dollar that the Pentagon gets is for the troops. And that's certainly not the case. Yeah, we have a long history of that throughout the 20th century of uh, spending tremendous amounts for uh, well, what some call profiteers, war profiteers. And while everybody, you know, wants the troops, the people— you know, brothers and sons and sisters to be protected and have the equipment that they need. There's so much, I would think, public support for that end of it. How does that get ignored? That That's what surprises me. I mean, is it just simply the power, the dollars, power of the of the lobbyists that, that uh, you know, f- keep the focus on more profits for the military contractors than for the guys and, and gals in the field that need it? Well, I think, you know, I don't think the contractors wake up in the morning and saying, you know, how can I hurt the troops? Right, right. But the net result of them pushing for these big-ticket weapon systems at the expense of other things that the Pentagon should be spending on, like maintaining uh, equipment, uh, like decent pay and benefits for troops and so forth, th- that's the effect of what they're doing. Um, and it's interesting because the contractors themselves try to argue that they're great advocates for the troops. Um, but the results of what they do mm. have quite the opposite effect. I think also a lot of people, despite the, uh, every once in a while there'll be, you know, a lot of outrage and, and ink and uh, web postings and right. so forth about problems at places like Walter Reed and throughout the veteran system. There doesn't seem to be consistent coverage. You know, is it getting any better? What needs to happen uh, to get it true. better? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the notion that there's a problem is out there, but the kind of consistent uh, Focus following of the issue to see if it's being solved tends not to be there. And, you know, that's a yeah. problem in general, I think, in our media is that for whatever reason, reporters are swamped, they're reducing the news size, they're following the crisis of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we don't, I don't think a lot of people realize how bad it is or what we would do to try to make it better. Yeah, that's a very good point, I think, that, uh, you know, with this 24-hour news cycle, just, you know, what's ever hot right now, it doesn't even last 15 minutes. You know, we just, we forget really quickly. And, you know, so these issues that we're, that you and I are trying to talk about, you know, military spending and the proliferation of guns going to criminal gangs and terrorists, it's not in the news every day. So people forget it and members of Congress don't feel the pressure. If you just tuned in, Burt Cohen here, we are... Keeping Democracy Alive, our guest today is William Hartung, Director of the Arms and Security Project at the Center for International Policy 
and he's written an article uh, called Another Good Year for Weapons Makers is Guaranteed. And you've mentioned the F-45s a couple of times. You know, on the topic of American jobs, your article talks about the infamous F-35. You refer to the plane as a Rube Goldberg contraction. Now, I remember Rube Goldberg. You, I'm not, probably a lot of people don't. Why is it infamous? And what can you tell us about where the F-35s would be assembled? Do we really outsource weapons manufacturing to potential competitors? Does, does China get military contracts? Tell us about the F-35. Well, the idea behind the F-35 was that it would be all things to all people or to all military services. So it was supposed to be both a fighter and a bomber for the Air Force. It was supposed to be able to land on aircraft carriers for the Navy. There was supposed to be a vertical takeoff and landing version for the smaller ships that the Marines used to uh, launch aircraft from. And so the problem was it couldn't do all these things well. And so there was all kinds of problems with production and cost overruns. And every once in a while, the Pentagon would say, oh, here's a nice new, you know, glitzy capability that we'd like to add. So add that, you know. Um, And so now we're in a position where they've probably spent, well, well over $100 billion, perhaps $150 billion, Hmm. uh, buying these things, many of which uh, my colleagues at the Project on Government Oversight have found are not ready for combat and may never be so. Um, Others of which, after they're built, have already had to have fixes and upgrades and uh, retrofits because they shouldn't have been built in the first place before they figured out, before they got the bugs out. Um, and so they want to spend uh, $1.5 trillion over the lifetime of these aircraft, which would make it the biggest weapons program in the history of the Pentagon, to buy about 2,400 of them. Um, but in tests, uh, they've lost in dogfights to F-16s and F-18s, which are current generation planes. Um, there's all kinds of problems of, you know, can they communicate properly with troops on the ground? Uh, can these high-tech helmets that are supposed to feed information to the pilot, are they really working properly at the cost of 400000 each? Um, you know, how long are they going to spend uh, in the hangar being maintained versus actually being able to fly? Um, can they support troops on the ground better than things like the A-10, which has been reliable and, and done it for years? So um, there's all kinds of problems with it. But you know, because it's the big new thing that the Air Force wants, and because Lockheed Martin has tried to spread contracts all over the country to keep uh, members of Congress on board, it's been going along at a, at a pretty healthy clip in terms of funding. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah, it, it would be a fantasy, but it's real. And and following up on that, you, well, actually, how much does... What's the price of an F-35 estimated to be these days for one, and how many are we planning to build? Well, you know, there's all these different ways of slicing it Uh um, based on what they include. But I think probably we're talking $125 billion or more per plane. They want to build 2,400 of them. Um, What? Wait, did I hear that right? $25 billion with the B per plane and they want to build... Million. million. I was wondering. Um, Which is, you know, so it's a bargain is what I'm saying. Um, (laughs) And... uh, you know, so it's it's a huge investment, and um, it's, it has yet to show um, any real benefits um, hmm. in terms of fighting power or, or being relevant to the wars 
that the United States is fighting, and of yeah. course we're fighting many two wars, uh, too many wars to begin yeah. with. But yeah. at least if they're going to build weapon systems, they should be relevant to the, to the conflicts they're most likely to fight. Well, what a concept! My goodness, a radical. <laughs> and you, oh, and you mentioned, um, you know, overseas production. There's yeah. an assembly facility in Japan that's going to put together F-35 sold in Asia. Uh, there's one in Italy that will deal with planes sold to Europe. And ironically, well, I don't know if anything's ironic with President Trump, but he was in Japan bragging about all the weapons we're selling them, all the great jobs are going to create in America. And apparently he was unaware that the F-35, which he claimed credit for selling, even though the deal was made in 2012 under Obama, the F-35, the ones we're selling to Japan, are going to be primarily built there. So his whole jobs argument kind of flew out the window. Um, but, he, of course, he wasn't briefed or didn't listen, so he, didn't, he wasn't aware of that. Well, I want to get back to that jobs question because it's it's really important, obviously. And one thing your article points out is that, quote, a recent estimate from the Congressional Budget Office, for example, suggests that a projected three-decade Pentagon plan to build a new generation of nuclear-armed missiles, bombers, and submarines, end of quote. But as you I mean, those are mega weapons aimed at the old-fashioned big state enemies. There's no Soviet Union anymore. How are these weapons relevant? I mean, how where do they fit in, or do they fit in at all, or is, is are they just not very useful at all to the wars that we're in, or projected to be in, or the uh, you know security threats that we face? Well, the U.S. has about four thousand nuclear weapons in the active stockpile that could be you know put on a delivery vehicle and, and sent off, um, and uh, or they're moving down towards about. 1,500 or so that would be ready to go at any time. Um, there's independent experts that said, okay, well, if you need nuclear weapons to keep another country from attacking you with a nuclear weapon, knowing that if they did so, they'd be destroyed in return, uh-huh. you could do that with about 300 deliverable warheads. And we have 1,500 and plus all these other thousands in the stockpile. Um, so we've got massive nuclear overkill, and yet here they're launching this whole new investment scheme to build, you know, 12 to 14 new uh, nuclear submarines at, you know, 8 billion a pop and nuclear bombers and new ballistic missiles to put in silos in places like Montana and North Dakota, Uh, possibly a new cruise missile that would carry nuclear weapons being launched from a a bomber. Um, So you name it, it's in there. And, and, you know, their argument is, well, we're, we're keeping up with other countries. You know, Russia's doing it, China's doing it. We're, we're just, you know, keeping up with the pack. But the thing is, if they're not needed, they're not needed. You know, I mean, if if a few hundred is enough to keep anybody from even dreaming of attacking you, and of course this would apply uh, to North Korea as well, yeah. Yeah. Um, then why build them? And, and I think part of it is just the military-industrial machine on autopilot, just keeping these contractors fat and happy. And part of it is this kind of, nuclear theology that's left over from the Cold War that says, well, you know, if they strike first and then we strike second, and can we strike third? And, you know, what if they go after our silos? And, you know, all this kind of theoretical thing that that doesn't sort of deal with the reality that any nuclear exchange of any kind Mm -hmm. is going to change the world as we know it. It's going to kill tens of millions of people. It could well even spark a famine because of the environmental impacts uh, worldwide. So, 
the, the main point about nuclear policy is we've got to make sure they don't use these things. And the best way to do that is to go to the lowest possible levels and ultimately to try to get rid of them. So to have this new huge buildup runs counter to that goal uh, because it says to everybody else in the world, uh, well, they're clearly building up. They're building a new generation. They claim they're going to be um, more capable than what came mm. before. So we better keep our nuclear arsenal as well. Mm. Or in the case of North Korea, maybe we should build one uh, because oh. Kim Jong-un said, well, you know, Iraq didn't have nuclear weapons. Hussein was overthrown. Libya got rid of its nuclear weapons. Gaddafi was overthrown. Uh, Donald Trump is threatening to attack me militarily. Uh, maybe I need these things, you know, to, to make them think twice before they try regime change in North Korea. So as, um, you know, as crazy as the guy is and as repressive as he is to his own people, he also wants to survive. Um, you know, there's no point being a dictator and a corrupt dictator if you're not going to survive to enjoy it. And I think he understands that. So, um, you know, our buildup just makes it less likely that we're going to be able to do things like keep North Korea from developing an even more elaborate and, and deadly nuclear arsenal than it's already got. I'm reminded of a film, I think it was in the early 80s, War Games, where they finally figured out, after all these uh, attempts and, and you know computer models, that the only way to win was not to play the game. But I, I wonder, you know, there's certainly, I understand con members of Congress fear of looking soft on defense, especially when, you know, defense contractors are spread out all across the country. So virtually every member of Congress has some defense-related uh, business in his or her area. But I wonder, I mean, we, we, we don't want to be vulnerable. Can one argue that more Pentagon spending yields greater security for America and our global interests? Playing devil's advocate there. No. Um, okay. I mean, the thing is throwing money at the problem if you're buying the wrong things and you're wasting large amounts of it. It doesn't really make us safer. You know, if we wanted to be safer, we'd be getting rid of nuclear weapons, not building more. Uh, if we wanted to be safer, we'd reconsider this whole strategy of whether the U.S. has to be, you know, selling weapons to over 100 countries, sending special forces in 2017 alone to 149 different countries, uh, being involved in at least seven active war zones. Uh, none of this is making terrorism go away. Uh, and, in fact, a lot of the... Oh, yeah terrorist attacks have been by, you know, these lone wolf uh, terrorists who basically get worked up and agitated and educated on the web and by ISIS's propaganda because it sort of gives them a way to make sense of the world, as twisted as that is. Um, but having nuclear weapons is going to stop somebody like that. Um, you know, fighting all these wars is going to stop somebody like that. And in fact, sometimes it makes it worse because, you know, if you look at ISIS, for example, they came out of... Uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq, which didn't exist until we right. invaded Iraq under the Bush administration. and They were a part of the pushback against the U.S. invasion. And so they, as part of that, they were able to recruit people to fight the U.S. And then the ideology got more and more extreme. Many of them actually networked in U.S.-run prisons where torture was being carried out. And that's when they committed themselves to building this new organization. Then they got... Um, training and pulled themselves together in the war in Syria. And when they came into Iraq, uh, many Iraqis were so fed up with the sectarian government that the U.S. had helped to install 
that they didn't put up much resistance uh, because they thought, well, you know, what could be worse than what we have? And of course, the Iraqi military uh, was extremely corrupt. Uh, there was this thing where the, you know, the commanders would have soldiers who didn't exist, and they'd collect pay mm. for them. Mm. Uh, they, they didn't really attend to their training very carefully. Uh, sometimes they were actually fighting. You know, for example, there were Shiite militias fighting alongside the government in many cases, which were attacking Sunni areas, not because there was a threat from ISIS or anybody else, but just to grab territory in kind of a form of uh, ethnic cleansing. So, mm. um, you know, the, all of that effort, all that money spent in Iraq created this chaos uh, and corruption, which helped ISIS get a, a foothold. It, it wasn't, we didn't create ISIS, but we made it a, a great deal easier for them to form uh, in the chaos that the U.S. Uh, intervention helped to cause. So um, why keep doing that? Uh, I mean, now in, in Africa, the United States has about 6,000 troops. Uh, it got some attention because of the right. uh, U.S. soldiers who were killed in Niger last year. Uh, and members of Congress, like Lindsey Graham and others, said, oh, I didn't know we had troops there. And right. How many troops do we have in Africa? In the case of Lindsey Graham, he said, oh, great, let's send more. But a lot of other members <laughs> were a little taken aback and said, maybe we should talk about this. And all this time, the number of terrorist groups in uh, North Africa and beyond has been growing. Uh, so this, you know, sending in the special forces and the arms and the training has not turned the tide against terrorism. So... I think we would need to reconsider all of that. You know, is this kind of cover the globe military strategy making it safer? Why do we need all these nuclear weapons? Uh, you know, what would be a good defense strategy? You know, how do you deal with domestic terror? And if you're going to deal with it, shouldn't you deal with it systematically so that it's not just a question of somebody who's, you know, hopped up with ISIS, but also somebody who's hopped up on Nazi propaganda? Mm -hmm. I mean, by some efforts, the white supremacists have carry on as many or more attacks in the U.S. as terrorist groups that give fealty to this extreme version of Islam. So, um, you know, there's a lot to think about, but I, I think we could certainly, uh, you know, freeze or reduce Pentagon spending uh, without undercutting our security. And, and during that time, I think we'd have to have a national conversation about what makes us safe, and yes. I think we'd have to acknowledge that some of these things are very difficult to protect against, but that launching new wars is not going to make things any better. Yeah, it does seem to be the case, and yet we keep going and uh, you know rebuilding obsolete weapon systems, just going on and on and on. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive. It's a large group effort, folks. We need your help here. Our guest today is William Harting, director of the Arms and Security Project at the Center for International Policy. He's the author of Prophets of War, Lockheed Martin, and the Making the Military-Industrial Complex. And I, I wonder about, uh, you know, just the proliferation of guns in general. You know, these big uh, nuclear submarines, aircraft carriers and stuff, Real terrorists, they don't give a darn about that. It has no effect on them whatsoever, I would guess. But there's there's so much money to be made in the gun industry. And, you know, not just these large, uh, uh, you know, huge weapons systems. With the There's a new outlook on American gun sales, it seemed. Like, I wonder how likely is it under the Trump administration that we would be putting more varied weaponry ever more easily 
in the hands of both criminal gangs and extremist groups. So here we are talking about wanting more national security. But talk about that, if you would, please. How, uh, you know, Trump's policy on, you know, anything the gun manufacturers want, how likely is it that we're putting more weaponry into the hands of bad guys? Well, I think there's a strong uh, possibility that that's going to happen because, you know, they're deregulating sales of firearms. And, you know, as you mentioned, putting the regulation in the Commerce Department instead of the State Department. Um, and that'll open up all kinds of possibilities uh, for diversion to groups that should not have uh, access to U.S. weapons. Um, you know, for example, there's a bunch of countries now that um, can get a lot of U.S. systems without license. You know, they just kind of do some paperwork to show they're generally reliable, and then uh, they can get guns and other things without a license for each sale. And and so these include places like Bulgaria, which over the years has been a place for gun trafficking. Um, you know, it's it's up and down. Uh, there's some allies in Latin America. Some of our European allies, uh, not just in East and Central Europe, have not been as reliable as one would like about keeping a hold of mm-hmm. the guns that we uh, sent to them. And of course, um, you know, even going back uh, during the war in Iraq, hundreds of thousands of U.S. supplied weapons went missing, yeah. uh, assumed to be in the hands of, um, you know, then Al Qaeda in Iraq uh, and other anti-U.S. forces. Uh, in Yemen, uh, when the government uh, fell during the Arab Spring, their military split in two, and so they're they're on opposite sides of the current civil war there. So both sides of the civil war. Uh, within Yemen, and not to mention the Saudis and the other countries intervening, uh, all have U.S. weapons. And so a lot yeah. of the death and destruction there, which is one of the biggest humanitarian crises Absolutely. Uh, in the world right now, yeah. has been fueled with U.S. weapons. And so Trump comes in, and he may well make things worse, uh, which is, is not that easy to do, given that our <laughs> policy before he came in was, was very misguided. Yes. Uh, but the few places where Obama took a stand on human rights in Bahrain, where they cracked down on the democracy movement, in Nigeria, where there's been huge uh, killings at the hands of the military, um, in Yemen itself, where they, yeah. uh, you know, they tried to suspend the sale of bombs to the Saudis. Trump reversed that. Um, he's he's very tight with the president of the Philippines, who has hired death squads or killing people in the streets. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, Obama, under pressure, did in a few instances make human rights more important than the profits of these companies. And that's exactly where Trump is saying, oh, we're not going to do that anymore. Uh, and he's got a new directive coming out to govern arms sales in general, which is talking about uh, de-emphasizing human rights and emphasizing creating U.S. jobs. Hmm. But uh, so many things to talk about. I mean, you talk about creating jobs. You know, I'm basically a fan of Franklin Roosevelt. He had some errors, too, but he certainly had a lot of success reducing unemployment by creating public works jobs. But it's well known that what really ended the Big Depression was massive spending for World War II. And you write that, quote, President Trump has long emphasized job creation above much else, but if he has an actual jobs program, it mainly seems to involve pumping more money into the Pentagon and increasing overseas arms sales. That such spending is one of the least effective ways to create new jobs evidently matters little. Talk about the jobs creation aspect of it and, 
You know, I, World War II, everybody went to work in the in the war machine. Why is that not? You know, there's a lot more a lot of spending on war stuff now. Why is that not the most effective way to create new jobs? Well, World War Two mobilized almost the entire society. Um, you know, we had 10 million troops under arms. Uh, we were cranking out, you know, thousands and thousands of uh, aircraft and other weapons. So, yeah, if you spend enough money, um, you can turn around an economy. Uh, if they had spent that same level of money on civilian goods, the economic impacts would have been even greater, even more positive. So in our current climate, you know, if you spend on the Pentagon versus, say, infrastructure or alternative energy, uh, those latter civilian uses create about one and a half times as many jobs as the Pentagon uh, for the amount spent. Education is about twice as much. Um, but, of course, the problem is the log jam in Washington. We're, we're not in an era where the government is increasing uh, domestic investments. They're retrenching on that. They've just done this big tax cut, so there's going to be less revenue available. So in that political environment, throwing money at the Pentagon is the easiest way for a president to say, oh, yeah, I'm creating jobs. But it's all based on um, this whole series of misguided policies. And, you know, as we said, these things are not defending us particularly well. Uh, And if the issue is jobs, there's many better ways to create them. But the route to doing that has to be uh, change in Washington, uh, because if the, you know, if you're if you're working at a submarine plant in Connecticut, right, and your choice is, you know, being a welder for a decent salary or being a greeter at the local casino, you're going to want to be a welder, of mm-hmm. course. And mm-hmm. and if there's no uh, alternative investments in your um, city or region to make up for uh, taking away Pentagon contracts, then of course you're going to feel it quite severely. So um, it's it's really more of a political issue than an economic mm-hmm. issue. If we wanted to uh, build our economy and that was the main priority, there would be much, much better ways to do it. Yes, and of course, I, I see nobody really talking about that. I mean, even Trump talked about uh, uh, public works jobs and investing in infrastructure. It just, it's so frustrating. There's so much need. Our, our highways, our rail system, our electric system— and as you mentioned, that, that guy welding in the submarine in Connecticut, you know, they could build train cars, heavy train cars uh, with similar skills and similar equipment. But I just don't see anybody talking about that. And it's not like, as we've said, Trump, you know, is a radical change in, in terms of spending on weapon systems. I mean, I remember seeing buttons in 2008 with the peace symbol and the word Obama on them. And I was like, that's not who Obama was. He was not at all a peace president. What wars did Trump inherit from Obama? And I wonder if you could talk us a bit about Obama and this uh, proliferation of weapons. And, you know, how much of a change is it or is it not really that much of a change? Well, you know, there's there's seven significant wars. There's other places, many other places with U.S. troops present. Oh, yeah. Um, but if you look at Syria, Iraq... Libya, Somalia, Yemen, Pakistan, and Afghanistan, all those wars were underway when Trump came into office. Uh, So he inherited them from Obama. Uh, What he has done is he's uh, ramped up. Um, Mm -hmm. He's sending more troops to Afghanistan. They've um, reduced the restrictions on targeting of bombs, so they've actually 
uh, killed more civilians. Uh, they're dropping more bombs than happened under Obama. They're trying to outdo Obama in arms sales, but Obama set a record uh, in the post-World War II period for uh, sales of arms during his two terms. So for Trump to do that is actually going to be a bit of a challenge, even for somebody who claims it's one of his top priorities. So uh, a lot of the you know the problems of the war system and the military-industrial complex were there. Um, you know, I, I think Obama, uh, the, the reason he got the um, designation as the peace candidate is basically because he said, you know, Iraq's a stupid war. We should be actually have fought more in Afghanistan and ramped down in Iraq. So he, even in his best mm-hmm. foot forward, he wasn't saying, uh, you know, I'm for peace around the globe. He was saying we're fighting the wrong war. No. Uh, and then he uh, vastly increased drone strikes as a preferred method of warfare over sending hundreds of thousands of troops overseas, as yeah. uh, Bush had done. Yeah. Um, so he he had a different strategy. It involved fewer boots on the ground. Mm-hmm. I think it therefore probably generated less domestic opposition here because a lot of people weren't aware of it. It didn't mm-hmm. affect their everyday lives. They weren't losing as many troops if he had drone operators instead of pilots uh, doing this stuff. Yeah. So, you know, Obama probably got a bit of a pass uh, for how uh, aggressive his foreign policy actually was. It's kind of ironic that, you know, you maybe remember the campaign, Trump, uh, until he settled on the crooked Hillary name, mm. he used to call her Hillary the Hawk. Really? And, I had forgotten that. Hmm. Yeah, she supported, you know, the intervention in Libya. Oh, uh, she voted for the disaster. war in Iraq originally. And so you had this bizarre situation where Trump... Uh, almost was running to the left of Clinton on foreign policy. He was saying Iraq was a disaster. We could have spent those trillions of dollars at home. And of course, Trump never delivered on any of those things. But he he saw that there was an opportunity to use that as a as a wedge to or or a club to hit not only Hillary over the head with, but Jeb Bush also. Uh, so he exploited what is. Actually, you know, in a lot of cases, people's weariness with war and made mm. it sound like he was going to pull back. And some people called him an isolationist. But for a lot of people, they didn't want to go through the disaster of Iraq again, you know, the Bush version of it, or uh, having tens of thousands of troops in Afghanistan and so forth. So Trump, as dishonest as he was, highlighted that as, as a way, and, and I think some of his supporters believe that. Of course, there's a whole other toxic brew of reasons people supported him, but uh, I thought that was kind of ironic piece of the mix. Yeah, interesting. Well, I, I must confess, I really, I wasn't thrilled with uh, Hillary's hawkishness, and she certainly was. But, uh, you know, we have to, again, defend ourselves, you know, uh, prudently, and we do face hostility from other countries and more uh, less other countries now than non-state players, and we—it doesn't seem we are very good at defending ourselves from them. Now you write that in 2018, Lockheed, Boeing, and General Atomics are scheduled to test drones that will reportedly use lasers to shoot down intercontinental ballistic missiles, like those being developed by North Korea. Well, that kind of sounds like a good idea. Does that make sense? I mean, is that a, a rare? Uh, you know, needle in the haystack? Well, I think the problem is, well, there's a couple problems. One is they've had great confidence in the ability of lasers to do all manner of things 
and it's never borne out. I mean, back when Reagan did Star Wars, um, mm. there was a uh, guy named Edward Teller who helped oh, make the yes. H-bomb. Yeah. Teller was a big um, proponent of space-based lasers, and in fact, it almost became like a symbol of Reagan's Star Wars program. Um, but all these years later, they'd never been able to make them work. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And so, you know, have they made progress? Perhaps. Um, but if they were able to do that, I think the most likely result would be uh, North Korea would build a larger nuclear arsenal. They'd no. bury some of them deeper because they would view it as a threat. You know, they would figure, well, if he can shoot down all my missiles and they attack, that means they can attack us with impunity. We, we won't be able to uh, respond. So there's a danger, even systems that are built as um, defensive, if they're in the midst of a arms race or a conflict situation, can actually up the ante. And that's why even... Um, President Nixon signed a uh, treaty to limit ballistic missile defenses because it was just uh, making hmm. Russia, the Soviet Union, and the U.S. build more and more offensive systems to offset whatever defenses the other side could create. So um, I don't think that would be a very helpful development. My guess is they'll throw a lot of money at it, and at some point we'll find out that they're failing in realistic testing, and it'll be much similar to a lot of the other missile defense ideas. But I, th- I think you got to the root of it, which is, okay, we're buying a lot of stuff we don't need, but right. you know, how we, do we defend ourselves against uh, you know, terrorist groups and, and these kind of small right. bunches of individuals who can do so much damage now? And I think yeah. you know, some of that is probably law enforcement, some is education, some is certain versions, I think, of uh, security can be helpful as long as we don't overdo it at the expense of civil liberties. Um, And then I think we need to be an example, you know, an example of a system that works, that helps people, that makes their lives better uh, in a way that we've done a much better job of uh, in the past than Mm -hmm. than we're doing currently. Um, You know, because part of it is an ideological battle. And and if, you know, a lot of the um, people that get recruited by ISIS, for example, do it partly on economic grounds. There's huge unemployment in the Middle East. There's no place for a lot of these young people to get a decent job, to feel like they've got sort of a, a life for themselves. And so ISIS comes in and, and gives them sort of the whole package. You know, we're, we're going to pay you, we're going to feed you, you'll have a purpose. It's a very distorted uh, purpose and, and right. an evil purpose in some ways, but it, it's something for somebody to plug into if they're completely... Uh, discouraged, yeah. humiliated, and so forth. Well, we, you know, as I mentioned in the beginning of the show, you know, America used to be the beacon of hope. We, you know, there was opportunity here, and it seems like our policies, uh, you know, the people around the world, uh, you know, most Americans may not be aware of what's going on in Yemen with our weapons, but the people around there sure are. You know, in in Africa, very few people know. I don't know how many. Uh, boots on the ground. We have their special operations. Uh, these people in other countries know it as well. And by, you know, by poking the uh, the hornet's nest, uh, you know, every now and then we're going to get stung. And and, and you talk. I mean, there's there's a more realistic threat too, which is, 
really dangerous to us, which could cause real damage to us, and that's cyber attacks. The power grid and our banking system are uniquely vulnerable to such things. You write that the concern may be justified, but the solution, throwing billions at the Pentagon and starting a new cyber command to press for yet more funding, is misguided at best. End of quote. Well, how should cyber attacks, uh, cyber threats be addressed? Can't the private utilities and banks take care of it themselves? What about such uh we're really vulnerable in that area i think you know even if they wanted to uh the government couldn't solve this problem on their own uh and so i think there has to be some government uh regulations and requirements that uh banks and uh energy suppliers and so forth do a better job of protecting their systems um and don't just cut it close because of the bottom line uh, and then I think there's room for uh, research, best practices, uh, work within government to try to uh, make all this more effective. But I, I think what's happening is the cyber command is in danger of becoming just another kind of bureaucracy that's going to just want more money regardless of whether it's achieving its goal. And um, there's a guy, Peter Singer, who I believe now is at the New America Foundation, uh, did a whole uh, very good book on cybersecurity. And one of the things he pointed out was uh, trained personnel are a bottleneck here, people who actually know enough about uh, computer systems and the Internet and how these things work to actually be able to help construct more effective defenses against hackers and so forth. So there's a, there's a point at which just spending more money isn't going to get you more capability and, until you can train up uh, people who have relevant skills. Mm. So um, that's frustrating. But also a lot of those skills exist in the private sector. Oh, uh, and if they were given more of a nudge to put them to work more uh, comprehensively, we'd be better defended uh, than we are now. Uh, yeah, we could we could do it better if we did it smarter. Now, you write that America's post-9-11 wars have already cost $5.6 trillion. And that's kind of a figure that, you know, just our eyes glaze over. I don't think, I mean, what is $5.6 trillion? A trillion dollars is, I believe, a thousand billion. I mean, and, and what has that gotten us? $5.6 trillion. I mean, maybe you can help people get a sense of what that means and, and how effective it has or hasn't been. Well, it's, uh, you know, there's different ways to try to think about it. Um, if you took a trillion dollar bills, they would stretch from here to the moon. Um, you could pretty much cover this, the gross state product of the majority of states in America for that kind of money. Um, you could, for example, they um, when they put in the Budget Control Act and the budget caps back in 2011, their goal was to uh, cut a trillion dollars of projected deficits, either through revenue increases or spending cuts. And, of course, there's been no revenue increases. So all those cuts and all that damage uh, could have been, you know, foregone for about a third of what we spent on the wars in Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and so forth, the, the whole uh, bundle of post-911 wars. And a lot of that, uh, this, this was done by... Um, researchers at Brown University's Cost right. of War Project, and they looked at all right, what were the immediate budgetary costs 
uh, how, what were the economic impacts, but also how much is it going to cost us to take care of all the veterans of these wars for the rest of their lives? Mm. And, you know, we're committed to do that. We have to do that. Um, but that alone added about a trillion dollars to the cost. So a lot of times when they go into these wars, they understate the possible costs, and particularly yes, of course. Uh, taking care of the people who were damaged in those wars. Yeah. Yeah, and there is real damage. You know, when you send somebody into an inhuman situation, you know, see horrible killing, of course, of course, they're going to be affected by it. So, you know, as I mentioned right in the beginning, people, they talk about a lot of things with Trump, you know, his insults to, you know, his racism, it goes on and on and on. But here we have these uh, perpetual wars, profligate weapons spending, uh, and still, still, they want to throw more money at the Pentagon. It's not making us any safer, as as you have suggested. There is, there's no major public pushback. Uh, we we haven't done it yet. I wonder why that is. Why is it that military spending has not gotten more people riled up? Is it possible that maybe when the Republicans go after Medicare and Social Security? Then maybe the topic will become in focus. Why are people not riled up about military spending? Have we just gotten numb to it? And what can be done, do you think, realistically? I mean, it's a, it's a big task ahead. Well, I think, you know, there's a variety of reasons. <clears throat> One is, um, at least in the Obama period, these wars were done without large numbers of troops. So it had less effect on people. You know, they didn't know neighbors and relatives and people in their community right. no, uh, yeah, no. who were spending long periods of time as long as they spent in the big Bush wars where there was hundreds of thousands of troops overseas. I think some people think, well, yes, of course it's happening, but I have no possibility of doing anything about mm. it. Mm. So I'm just going to take care of my family and, uh, and myself, and, and this is just part of the landscape. Um, I think some people don't realize the way the trade-offs work. Uh, you know, the Pentagon accounts for more than half of the discretionary budget, which is pretty much everything but things like Medicare, uh, Social Security, Medicaid, which are entitlement programs. Mm -hmm. Their conditions are uh, set by law, and also there's a separate tax stream for the the biggest of them. Um, So to change those, Congress has to pass a new law. They've got to go through some hoops. But the stuff they can just do every year, just in the budget process, includes environmental protection and administration of justice and infrastructure spending and education and uh, some aspects of the healthcare system. So all of that combined gets less money than the Pentagon in that uh, important part of the budget. And I think a lot of people don't really realize uh, that those trade-offs are being made because it, it filters down, you know, there's grants to the states, there's grants to localities. You have to kind of trace it back to see exactly how the trade-offs work. And there's a group called the... Uh, National Priorities Project, which does a lot of good analysis uh, on that sort of stuff, including impacts on states and localities and congressional districts, how much they're losing in domestic investment to pay for uh, you know, the Pentagon budget. And I think, you know, um, we are at a point where um, there's a move in Washington to roll back not just the Great Society, but even the New Deal. Yeah, uh, and so if they go after... Social Security, which is a hugely popular program, much needed, or Medicare, I think there will be strong pushback. And because they've already kind of pulled the revenues out from under the government with this tax giveaway bill, uh, the, the trade-offs between uh, 
Pentagon spending and the rest of the budget are going to be much more stark. Uh, and then you've got um, there's a new movement. Um, uh, Reverend William Barber, who oh, yes. ran the Moral Majority, uh, rather not the Moral Majority, uh, bite my tongue, oh. um, <laughs> the Moral Mondays movement yes. in North Carolina that pushed back a lot against a lot of the retrograde actions there, wants to ignite a new version of Dr. Martin Luther King's Poor People's Movement, which looked at uh, inequality, racism, and militarism as the three most important threats to mm-hmm. our democracy. And so if that gets traction, there'll be kind of a natural home where groups that work on domestic issues and uh, poverty and fighting racism and groups that have worked on peace issues will have a common umbrella to work together. Because the one of the interesting things about there's been a lot of new movements sprouting up under Trump yes. on immigration, um, so health care, uh, you know, uh, fighting his racist, white supremacist ties and so forth. And, of course, the Women's March, which had raised a whole range of issues. But in the midst of all this uh, movement building, the Pentagon budget issue has not really gotten a lot exactly. of attention. Right. Uh, and right. I think that could change depending what happens with the new poor people's movement. There's also a move by some groups called Divesting from the War Machine, which wants to go after the corporate role in this, which I think would appeal mm. to people um, you know, across the spectrum because I think nobody wants to give away their tax dollars to corporations for no good reason. Um, so I think that there's, there may be some hope, uh, but it, it's, it's a challenging thing, and, and I think the thing about movements is you never quite know when something is going to take off. It's always a bit yeah, of a true. surprise. No. So, uh, but to be ready, to be educated, to sort of know what we're fighting for at least is a start. You know. It is, and we are certainly not powerless. William Hartang, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive, Director of Armed Security Project at the Center for International Policy. If people want to read more of your stuff, is there a website to which you can point them? I think the two best ways, one is to go to TomDispatch.com, ah, because yes. I write for them frequently. Yes. Uh, the other is to just Google Center for International Policy, or even my name, and it will pop up uh, my website of my organization, and we post all my publications, be they reports. Uh, articles quoting me or things that I've written. All right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, as again, we are not powerless. We can uh, take on the gun and military industry. Thanks so much for being with us. Yes, thank you.